Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. Well, as we come to the closing section of Colossians, uh, I want to remind you that Paul wrote this letter while he was incarcerated in Rome. He spent two years under house arrest in Rome while he was awaiting trial before Caesar. Uh, But just because Paul was incarcerated, don't think that he wasn't making an impact for the gospel. Paul was actually very active in his ministry during this time. For example, he sent out uh, many letters to individuals and churches. Not only did he write this letter to the Colossians while imprisoned in Rome, but he also wrote the letters, um, letters to Philemon, uh, the, the letters to the Philippians, the Ephesians, and the Laodiceans. And he, he probably wrote many other le- letters that we're just not aware of that have not survived and were not included in the scriptures. But moreover, Paul while incarcerated, witnessed to everybody he came in contact with. Uh, We know from his letter to the Philippians that he was actively witnessing to the Praetorian guards who were assigned to watch over him. And we know from the conclusion of that same letter that he had managed to reach many of the members of Caesar's family with the gospel. Philippians 4.22 reads, All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. And we know that many of the people that, uh, that, that many, many people came to visit Paul while he was incarcerated. Acts 28 verse 17 describes how he called for uh, all the uh, leaders of the Jews that were in Rome together that he may preach and share the gospel with them. In verse 23, Acts 28 verse 23 says, many came to him at his lodging to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both from both the law of Moses and the prophets. And the book of Acts ends with the statement concerning the productive nature of Paul's ministry while in Rome. Verses 30 and 31, Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented home and received all who came to him preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. And so being under house arrest did not prevent Paul from being active in the gospel ministry. Quite the contrary, he was very productive. And what we see in our sermon text is a a snapshot given Uh, a picture that's taken at the time he's writing, a snapshot of some of the people who were helping him in his ministry at the time he wrote the book of Colossians. Uh, He mentions eight people who were there with him in Rome, and then he mentions two other people who were not in Rome, but people who were somehow involved in gospel ministry. Of the eight who were with him are Tychicus, Uh, He's described in verse 7 as a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant of the Lord. Onesimus is described in verse 9 as a faithful and beloved brother who is one of the Colossians. Now, if you're familiar with the letter that Paul wrote to Philemon, uh, you'll probably remember that Philemon was a prominent person in the Colossian church. He was a prominent person 
person in the Colossian church, very likely the church met at Philemon's house. Onesimus was one of Philemon's slaves who ran away and somehow ended up with Paul in Rome. And that's where Onesimus became a Christian when he came and met Paul. So when Paul is writing to the Colossians, he tells them that Onesimus is in Rome and will soon be coming back to Colossae. But Paul is very quick to inform the Colossians that Onesimus is a faithful and beloved brother. He knows that the last time the Colossians saw Onesimus, that he, Onesimus, was an unbelieving runaway slave. And so Paul was reframing their opinion of Onesimus. He's, he's setting the stage so Onesimus can, can come back and be received peaceably uh, by the people who are in Colossae. Uh, a, a man named Aristarchus is mentioned in verse 10. Uh, we first read of Aristarchus in Acts 19, verse 29, where he's traveling with Paul in Ephesus, where a, a violent riot broke out. And then in Acts 20, verse 4, we see Aristarchus accompanying Paul in Greece. And then in Acts 27, verse 2, we see that Aristarchus sailed with Paul to Rome. And so here in verse 10 of our sermon text, we're told that Aristarchus is imprisoned in Rome. And we're not told why he's imprisoned. Uh, we're not told whether he's in his own jail cell or whether he's in the rented house that Paul was imprisoned in. Uh, Paul simply states that Aristarchus is his fellow prisoner and he sends his greetings to the Colossians. Also in verse 10, Paul writes that Mark is there with him. Mark, who is also called in scriptures John or John Mark, was a relative of Barnabas. And he was either Barnabas's cousin or his nephew, depending on how you choose to interpret the Greek. This is the same Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. In verse 11, we see uh, a man named Justice, whose Hebrew name is Jesus. Uh, he was one of the, the few Jewish believers who were there in Rome with Paul, helping Paul. And Paul says that Justice, along with John Mark, are both a comfort to him. In verse 12, we read of Epaphras. We've encountered him earlier in the book of Colossians. He is or was the pastor of the Colossian church. He was with Paul at the time that Paul wrote to the Colossians. And if you remember, uh, Epaphras went to Paul for assistance with what was going on in the Colossian church because this, this evil, wicked heresy of Gnosticism had come into the church and Epaphras was seeking Paul's counsel and assistance with dealing with that. And it's quite probable that Epaphras has something to do with Onesimus meeting Paul. Since they both knew each other from back in Colossae, they, that their paths may have crossed as they were, as Epaphras is traveling to see Paul and Onesimus is running away to Philemon. They saw each other and Epaphras says, come with me, I'm, I'm going to a good place. In verse 17, or I mean in verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician who often traveled with Paul and who wrote the gospel of Luke as well as the book of Acts, he is said to be with Paul in Rome 
And so was a man named Demas. Demas's name is included in verse 14 as a person who sends his greetings to the Colossians. So these are the eight men who were there with Paul in Rome when he wrote the book of Colossians. And, and they were helping Paul in his ministry, his very productive ministry within Rome. All eight of these men were helping Paul. And then there are two other people that Paul mentions by name, but who were not in Rome. In verse 15, he mentions a person named Nymphus. It's not entirely clear whether Nymphus is a male or a female. Uh, some of our Bible translations, such as the New King, New King James Version, give us the masculine form of this name, whereas other translations like the ESV and the New American Standard Bible give us the feminine form of the name. So I don't think it makes a big difference whether we know today whether this person was a male or female. Uh, the point that Paul is making and the point that we should, should take from this is that the church in Laodicea met at Nymphus's house. So when we read in verse 16 that Paul's letter to the Colossians was supposed to be read to the church of Laodicea, it makes perfect sense that Paul would send his greetings to Nymphus in this letter because that's the person who provided the place for the Laodiceans to meet for church. And also in verse, uh, and then in verse 17, Paul mentions Archippus. Archippus held a, a formal office of ministry in the church in Colossae. Maybe he was an elder. Maybe he was a deacon. We're not told what his specific duties were, but it sounds like he had grown weary of the labors of his office because Paul instructed the Colossians to remind Archippus to take heed to the ministry which he has received from the Lord that he may fulfill it. So these are the 10 people Paul mentions by name in our sermon text. 10 people who are somehow connected with the gospel ministry. And I want us to take a, a closer look at these people because the challenges, trials, joys, and successes they experienced in the first century are no different from the trials and challenges and joys and successes we experience here in the 21st century. In other words, we can learn from these people. We can learn some important truths and principles that apply to the work God has called each of us to do in our daily Christian walk. I don't intend, however, to, to take a closer look at all 10 of these people today. That would be too much for, for one sermon. Instead, I'm going to focus our attention on three of these people, Mark Demas, and Archippus. And the reason I selected these three is because they all share something in common. To one degree or another, each of these men were tempted to quit the ministry work that they were involved in. Each of these men were, attempted, or were, were tempted to quit the ministry work that they were involved in. One of them was tempted to quit but did not. The other two were tempted to quit and did of those two that quit, one of them was restored to profitable ministry and the other apostatized. So these three men show us three very different responses to the temptation to abandon the ministry that we are involved in. 
One, as I said, never quit. Another quit but was restored. And another quit and completely walked away from the Christian faith. So let's begin with Archippus. As I already mentioned, Archippus held a position of leadership in the Colossian church. And something developed in Archippus's ministry that made Paul think he might quit. More than likely, almost certainly, he received this input from Epaphras, Paul did. And so, so Paul wrote to the Colossians, and in writing to the Colossians, he instructs the people of the congregation to tell Archippus not to quit his ministry. Look at verse 17. And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. In Paul's letter to Philemon, Archippus is identified in verse 2 as, quote unquote, a fellow soldier. The fact that Paul uses this military metaphor may indicate that Archippus had experienced conflict or persecution in his ministry. It may indicate that Archippus had experienced conflict or persecution while ministering alongside Paul, who definitely did experience a lot of conflict and persecution. We don't know where that happened or or whether it even did happen. But whatever the case, Paul refers to him as a fellow soldier, which means Archippus was a man who was fighting the good fight of faith. Yet something had developed that had Archippus thinking about quitting. It's not difficult to understand why this might be so. Ministry can be very difficult. And when I speak of ministry, I'm I'm speaking in the broadest sense of the term. Ministry isn't just the work that elders, deacons, and missionaries do. Every Christian is called by God to ministry work. Ephesians 4 verses 11 and 12 says that God called some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. And we would look at that list and say, those are the people who are doing ministry. But when we keep reading, it says that God called these apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for a reason. What was the reason? What's the reason given in Ephesians 4.12? For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. For the equipping of the saints, not just those elders and and teachers and apostles, the saints, for equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. And the word ministry here literally means service. Every Christian is called to discharge of, um, to, to the discharge of loving service in the name of Jesus Christ. That's your ministry. Not every Christian shares the same gifting from God. Not every Christian shares the same calling from God. So the loving service that you've been called to discharge is going to look perhaps different than the loving service that I've been called to discharge. But all of us are called to discharge loving service in the name of Jesus Christ. That's our ministry. And ministry can become wearisome. That's what Archippus was dealing with. His ministry was a leadership position within his local church. And you would think that serving in the local church would be one of the easiest ministries in the world, wouldn't you? After all, you're dealing with Christians all the time. You're dealing with people who know the Lord and are committed to honoring him with their lives. So what can possibly make that job difficult and wearisome. 
Yet when you think about the work church leaders do behind the scenes, and you consider the personal sacrifices they and their families make in order to accomplish that work, and you see the expectations that people place upon them, and you hear the allegations that are whispered by those whose expectations have not been met, and you factor in the emotional taxation of walking with people through various trials, sorrows, conflicts, and the, and the dire consequences of sin, you begin to understand why the burnout rate among church leaders is so high. You begin to understand why they're frequently tempted to throw in the towel and quit. I suspect that's what Archivist was struggling with. We can only speculate about the details, but knowing that Epaphras was the pastor in the Colossian church and he was on extended travels to Rome, we can surmise that a lot of Epaphras' responsibilities were shifted to the other leaders in the Colossian church. Archippus was one of those other leaders. He, he was probably growing weary under the burden of responsibility. And so Paul told the Colossians to remind Archippus that his ministry had been given to him by God. The implication here is that God doesn't make mistakes. If God gave Archippus this ministry, then God has also equipped Archippus with everything he needs to persevere in fulfilling this ministry. And the same is true for you, brothers and sisters. Whatever ministry the Lord has called you to, he has equipped you with everything you need for persevering and fulfilling your ministry. Whether your ministry is in the home or your ministry is in the church or in the public square or in the private sector, you have a ministry. You've been called by God to discharge loving service in the name of Jesus Christ. And wherever that calling has brought you, whatever circumstances that has put you in, know that it's the Lord who brought you there and he has given you everything that, that you stand in need of in order to fulfill the ministry he has given you. Now somebody might ask, wasn't it embarrassing for Archippus to be publicly exposed like this? Why didn't Paul just write Archippus, a private letter. Why did he feel the need to let the entire church know what's going on with Archippus? I can think of a few reasons why Paul wrote openly about this. First, as a church leader, Archippus was in a public office and was therefore publicly accountable. So the congregation had the right to know. It actually undermines the congregation's trust and confidence in their leadership when the leadership tries to cover over situations by concealing them. Second, personal embarrassment is never a sufficient reason for concealing something that should otherwise be made public. We certainly want to be sensitive to how other people are impacted by the things that we share. Love requires that we use discretion where discretion is permitted. But there are times when the right course of action will result in somebody being embarrassed. The biblical term for this is humility. Sometimes the Lord humbles us for our own good. We would be remiss in our responsibilities and acting in opposition to the sanctifying work of the Lord 
if we neglected to do what's right simply because we wanted to spare ourselves of being humbled. And the third reason Paul wrote openly about the situation related to Archippus is because if Archippus had grown weary of the responsibilities of his office, then it was helpful for the congregation to be made aware of it. By knowing that Archippus was struggling, the members of the congregation could help him. They could come alongside him and support him, perhaps relieving some of the responsibilities that he was burdened with. Take note of the actual word that Paul used in verse 17. He did not write to the Colossians, rebuke Archippus, telling him to take heed of the ministry. Nor did he write, exhort Archippus to take heed of the ministry. He wrote, say to Archippus, take heed of your ministry. This is the Greek word lego, the word that's used for common everyday speech. So Paul is not telling the Colossians to be stern with Archippus, or, but he's telling them to be compassionate with Archippus. They're, they were being told to encourage him by reminding him that the ministry that he has been given has been given to him by God, and therefore he needs to look to the Lord for his strength and for his endurance. The second man that we're focusing on today is Mark. Now, Mark wasn't just tempted to quit the ministry. He actually did quit. Uh, we read about it in Acts 13. Paul and Barnabas is, were on their first missionary journey, and they, they took Mark with them as an assistant. They left, uh, the three of them left Antioch. That was their starting point. They left the church in Antioch together, all three of them, and they went down to uh, Seleucia, and from there they sailed to the island of Cyprus. On Cyprus, they were confronted by a false prophet named Elis, uh, uh, Elamus, the sorcerer, and then in Acts 13, it describes how Elamus, the sorcerer, withstood these missionaries, and Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, was able to pronounce blindness upon the sorcerer. Verse 11 says, and immediately a dark darkness fell upon Elisimus, a sorcerer, and he went around seeking someone who could lead him by the hand. And so all this happened when they're in Cyprus. Really the first encounter that they had with being missionaries. And then these three missionaries set sail for Perga and Pamphylia. And when they arrived there, Acts 13, 13 says that Mark departed from them and returned back to Jerusalem. In other words, he left. The missionary journey was not over. In fact, it had just begun. But Mark left. He quit. If all we had to go by was what we read in Acts 13, 13, then we would probably not know whether Mark's departure was right or wrong. Uh, we, we would probably think that Paul and Barnabas approved of his departure. Maybe there was a good reason for him to leave. But in Acts 15, verse 36, shortly after the Jerusalem council had met, Paul said to Barnabas, uh, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. And Barnabas thought this was a good idea. He agreed. So yeah, let's go back to these cities. Only what we read in the next two verses is that Barnabas wanted to take Paul, or I mean, uh, Mark with them, and that led to a disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. 
37 and 38. Uh, now Barnabas was determined to take with him John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. The Greek word that's translated as departed in verse 38 is a strong word. Sometimes it's used to describe those who fall away from the faith. That's not the only way the word is used, but it is the word that's used for apostasy. For example, it's the word that's used in Luke 8, verse 13, which is in the parable of the sower. It describes a seed that fell in a rocky soil and fell away in times of temptation. That's the same word. It also is used in Hebrews 3.12, which issues a warning to beware lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Same word. And so when Paul insisted to Barnabas that they should not take with them the one who had departed and not gone with them to the work, he was making a strong, strong declaration that what Mark had done back in Acts 13 was not an authorized departure. Mark had quit. We don't know the details of why he quit, but it's clear from Paul's dispute with Barnabas that Mark's departure was a serious failure in Mark's character. He had begun a ministry work, but he failed to see it through to its completion. And in so doing, he lost the Apostle Paul's confidence, and he was not going to trust Mark with any more ministry responsibilities. Barnabas, however, he was not so quick to give up on Mark. Barnabas was the son of encouragement. That's what his name literally means. That's why he was given that name. His real name was Joseph, but they called him Barnabas because he's such an encourager. He always looked at the optimistic side of things. Moreover, Mark was Barnabas's close relative, so they had a strong relationship. They had known each other for a long time. And the contention between Paul and Barnabas over Mark and his role in the ministry was so sharp that, that Paul and Barnabas parted from each other. Barnabas took Mark, and he went one direction. Paul took Silas, and they went a different direction. And the book of Acts follows the path of Paul and Silas. All we're told about Barnabas and Mark is that they sailed to Cyprus. But fast forward a dozen years, and the apostle Paul is under house arrest in Rome, writing this letter to the Colossians, and he writes in verse 10 that Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, is with him. And he goes on to tell the Colossians that if Mark comes to them, they should receive him, receive him as a minister of the gospel. So apparently the confidence and training that Barnabas invested into Mark paid off. Mark, therefore, serves as an example of a Christian who had a serious failure in his ministry but was eventually restored to a position of trust and integrity. I'll have more to say about that a little later, but right now let's turn our attention to Demas. In verse 14 of our sermon text, Paul writes, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Now Demas is also mentioned in verse 24 of Philemon, where Paul groups him together with some of the other men who are called fellow laborers. And so Demas is described in two of Paul's letters as a fellow laborer in the gospel ministry who sends his greetings to the Christians in Colossae. But Demas is going to um, 
uh, not going to continue in the ministry. Demas is not going to continue in the ministry. Like Mark, Demas is going to quit. But unlike Mark, Demas is not going to be restored. Demas is going to completely abandon the Christian faith. Let me, let me remind you that Paul wrote Colossians and Philemon while he, while he was awaiting trial in Rome. Um, after two years of waiting, Paul had his day in court, and he was acquitted. He was set free. Once set free, Paul resumed his missionary travels. Um, there's not a lot of information in the scriptures about where he traveled after being set free from Rome, but there are enough clues that we can piece together a reasonable reconstruction. And listen, as I read a brief overview of a reconstruction that's found in the New Bible Dictionary. After the Roman imprisonment, there are no recorded travels of Paul in Acts. From Paul's intentions, his travel notes in the pastoral epistles, and from early church history, one can only attempt to reconstruct his itinerary after his release from the Roman prison in the spring of AD 62. It seems probable that he traveled east, probably first in Ephesus and Colossae, spring of autumn, spring and autumn of 62, later in Macedonia, autumn of 62, the winter of 62 or 63, from where he wrote 1 Timothy, and afterward returned to Asia Minor. After Asia Minor, Paul may well have gone to Spain. After Spain, it is possible that Paul, with Titus, returned to the east by going to Crete and leaving Titus, uh, and leaving Titus. Paul then returned to Asia Minor from where he wrote Titus. He went to Nicopolis for the winter of 66-67. It seems that Paul went to Macedonia and Greece and was possibly arrested when Nero was in Greece in the autumn of 67. It is probable that Paul was again imprisoned in Rome from where he wrote 2 Timothy, autumn of 67. Uh, Paul's death may have come in the spring of 68. What I want you to see from this reconstruction is that Paul was not only set free from Rome, but then he traveled uh, to different locations over the span of about five years. Uh, then he was arrested again. Ironically, he ended up imprisoned in Rome again, from where he had previously been imprisoned and then set free. And it's from that prison cell in this latter Roman imprisonment that he wrote the second letter, second epistle to Timothy, in which is the last New Testament epistle that Paul wrote before his martyrdom. So second Timothy was written about five or six years after Colossians and Philemon were written. When Colossians and Philemon were written, Demas is described as a fellow laborer. But when second Timothy was written, Demas has apostatized Listen as I read 2 Timothy 4, verse 10. Paul writes, For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Now some people have questioned whether Demas actually did apostatize. Uh, they point out 
that Paul wrote, Demas has forsaken me, Paul, not Demas has forsaken Christ. Can we really say that Demas turned away from the faith simply because he forsook Paul? Well, this is a question that needs to be considered, but let's not ignore what Paul goes on to say in that same verse. He says that the reason Demas has forsaken him is because he loves this present world. In biblical parlance, that's saying Demas is an enemy of God. Consider James 4 verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or consider 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Jesus warned that it's not enough to just labor for a season. The man who begins to labor for the kingdom but does not finish the work demonstrates that he was never a citizen of the kingdom to begin with. Matthew 24, verses 12 and 13. The love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. He who endures to the end shall be saved. And Luke 9, verse 62. No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. It's not enough to confess Christ for a season. It's the one who continues to the end who shall be saved. It's been said that one should never write the biography of a man while he's still alive. The reason for this is that some people don't finish the race. They run, but they don't run with endurance, so they end up quitting before they reach the finish line. Demas quit before he reached the finish line. He didn't count the costs before he began. He put his hand to the plow And then he looked back. Like Lot's wife, he couldn't forget the things which are behind and reach forward for the things which are ahead. He didn't press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Instead, he proved, Demas proved to be the seed which fell among the thorns. He heard the word and immediately received it with joy, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choked the word, and demons became unfruitful. Every Sunday, there are people sitting in Christian churches all over, all over the world who are tempted to quit the ministry that the Lord has given to them. They will respond in one of three ways. They'll either respond like Archippus, or they'll respond like Mark, or they'll respond like Demas. If you find yourself amongst those who are growing weary of your ministry that the Lord has given to you, then let me remind you that the ministry you have is in fact from the Lord. So don't give up, don't quit. Of course, there will be occasions when you finish the ministry that the Lord has given to you and it's time to move on to the next ministry. That's not quitting, that's finishing. That's transitioning. That's not a sin. What I'm talking about here is when you're in the midst of the ministry that the Lord has given to you and you're tempted to give up because it's wearisome or because it's difficult or because it requires personal sacrifice. The solution in these cases 
is not to quit. It's not to quit. If you're like Archippus and you've grown weary of your ministry, the first thing I challenge you to assess is your, is, is your rhythm of rest. What does your Sabbath look like? How are you keeping the Sabbath? Are you resting on the Sabbath? Are you remembering it throughout the week, preparing for it so you can genuinely rest from the toil of your ministry? God gave us the Sabbath for this very reason, brothers and sisters. None of us are superheroes. None of us have superpowers. The Lord knows that all of us need to have rest, and so he has graciously given to us the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the temperature regulator that keeps the, bo- the, the boiler from overheating. And God has also given us a safety valve to release the pressure if the boiler does overheat. It's Galatians 6.2. Galatians 6.2 is the safety valve, the blow-off valve, so that if uh, you are having too much that you can bear, then you go to Galatians 2. What does Galatians 6.2 say? It says that we are to bear one another's burdens. And so when your ministry begins to be too much for you, let your brothers and sisters in Christ know what your burdens are. Let them come alongside of you to help you. Let them release some of the steam that's inside of your boiler that you may bring the temperature back down and resume your function. Hebrews 12.1 says that you are to run with endurance a race that is set before you. The race which is described here is a marathon. It's not a sprint. So pace yourself. Pacing is necessary. Establish and maintain a weekly rhythm of rest, the very rest that the Lord has blessed you with. Let the body of Christ share in your burdens and look unto Jesus for your strength, for he is not only the author of your faith, but he is also the finisher of your faith. This means that you have the assurance the divine assurance that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. And so you can rest in that. But maybe there are some of you who have already quit. Maybe some of you have already made the mistake of giving up the ministry that God has given to you. Maybe you've given up on your marriage. Maybe you've given up on your children. Maybe you've given up on whatever it is the Lord has called you to do. If this is you, then let me assure you that your premature departure from the ministry the Lord has given to you is a very serious sin. And once again, let me remind you that I'm not talking about the kind of situations in a person's life where uh, you happen to finish a particular ministry. You see it through to its completion. There will come times when you have raised your children to adults, your empty nesters, they've moved on and you've completed that ministry. There will come times when your spouse dies and that ministry's over. There will come times where sickness or age or mental acuity or other providences uh, of God require you to make changes in your ministry. Those things are not sin. Those are God's providences. Those are God. Um, moving and leading you into new directions. What I'm talking about here are people like Mark, people who quit before they finished. I'm talking about people who put their hand to the plow and turn back. 
Jesus says that such a person is not worthy of the kingdom. And so this, brothers and sisters, is a very serious sin. Yet the life of Mark teaches us that such quitters who have committed that sin can be restored to useful and profitable service in the kingdom of Christ. Do you know what Paul wrote immediately after he told Timothy about Demas deserting him, forsaking him? In 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul explains that Demas had forsaken him. And then in the very next verse, Paul writes to Timothy, get Mark and bring him with you. He is useful to me in ministry. Get Mark and bring him with you. He is useful to me in ministry. How did Mark go from being the man who quit the ministry journey and could not be trusted with any additional ministry responsibilities to being the man that Paul specifically asked for by name because he's useful for ministry? Not to mention, Mark also wrote one of the gospels in the New Testament. The Bible doesn't give us the exact details of the, or an account even of Mark's restoration, but I think we all know how he was restored. It was through the gospel of grace. Barnabas patiently and tenderly impressed the gospel of grace upon Mark's burdened soul, leading him to recognize his sin, confess his sin, and forsake his sin. And we know that's what happened because there's no other way that Mark could have possibly been restored. The gospel is the only means and mechanism for restoration. So if you're sitting here this morning and you've already made the mistake of quitting the ministry that God has given to you, then let me step into Barnabas' shoes and impress upon your burdened soul the restoration that can be yours through the gospel of grace. In 1 Peter 5, 5, we're reminded that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. And then Peter makes the logical application in the very next two verses. Therefore, he writes, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon him for he cares for you. To humble yourself means to do what Mark evidently did, to recognize your sin, confess your sin, and forsake your sin. It means to stop pretending like you have the right to quit the ministry that God gave to you. It means to stop pretending that it's your prerogative to quit. Humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God means you change your perspective from being autonomous to being submissive, from being a law unto yourself to being obedient to God's will. This present world tells you that you deserve to be happy. It tells you that you don't need to put up with all that nonsense that's going on in your life. This present world says that you can do whatever you want to do. You can be whoever you want to be. So if you need to quit something to make that happen, then go right ahead and quit. Nobody can tell you otherwise. Nobody has a right to tell you that you need to continue and persevere and push on in something you don't want to do. Well, let me tell you, dear friends, that's what Demas believed. Because Demas loved this present world, he was persuaded by the lies of this present world. 
But the Word of God says that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It tells us that we will experience hardship and trials in this life. It says that it tells us that we are blessed when we suffer for righteousness' sake. Right? It's righteous to persevere in our ministry. It's righteous to, to suffer because we're doing the will of God. So don't think that it's something strange when fiery, tri- fiery, tr- fiery trials come upon you. Know that this is the testing of your faith and persevere in Christ through the power of Christ. And then Peter goes on to say that after humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God, you take all your cares, all your worries, all your doubts and insecurities and anxieties and fears, and you cast them upon Jesus Christ because he cares for you, Peter assures you. He cares for you. Have you ever tried to carry a saddle? A saddle is a difficult thing to carry because it's so awkwardly shaped. If you try to carry it in front of you, um, it rests on your thighs and you have to walk like this with it bouncing up and down and the stirrups are whacking your shins. It's not comfortable, it's not easy. And if you try to throw it up on your shoulder, well then you got all this weight on, on your one shoulder and it's bending your neck over and you're walking in a, uh, a tweaked position and certainly, certainly my back's going to go out. But if you put the saddle on a horse, the horse has no problem carrying it. This is because the horse is built in such a way that the saddle is not a great burden for him. That's what God is telling you to do with your cares and anxieties in 1 Peter 5, 7. You're to cast them on Jesus Christ. Don't try to carry them yourself. You can't carry your cares and anxieties yourself. You don't have the strength for that. You're not built for that. But Jesus is able to carry them as easy as a horse can carry a saddle. So humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you, he may restore you in due time. And then cast all your cares upon him for he cares for you, he loves you and he's willing to restore you to the ministry he has given to you. That's why he gave it to you in the first place. And he will make you useful for ministry just like he did with Mark. But let me warn you, dear friends, if you refuse to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, you will end up like Demas. You will have been enlightened by the good news of the gospel. You will have witnessed the power of the Holy Spirit. You will have tasted the heavenly gift, the good word of God, and the powers of the age to come, yet you will fall away because of your love for this present world. And when you stand before Lord Jesus on that great and terrible day of judgment, you'll say, Lord, Lord, didn't I serve you for a season? Didn't I do this in your name? Didn't I do that in your name? And Jesus will declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So dear friends, whoever hears these warnings and heeds them, He will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. 
But whoever hears these warnings and does not heed them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. Just like the fall of Demas. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted, copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George, available at nathanclarkgeorge.com.